Today, we will resume our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which I have been preaching through over the past year and a half, whenever I've had the opportunity to do so. This book was written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. After receiving a report from a leader in the Colossian church by the name of Epaphras. While Paul spends much time rejoicing over the positive parts of Epaphras' reports, commending the Colossians for their faith and for their love for one another, it is also clear that Epaphras brought reports of false teaching that was threatening the church and spreading within it. In the last sermon in this series, we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, where Paul expounded on the glory of the gospel and the fullness of our union with Christ in comparison with the shadows of the Old Testament and with pagan superstition. Today, we will study verses 16 through 23 of chapter 2, where Paul continues this line of thought. He engages specifically with several different aspects of the false teaching that was troubling the Colossians, showing their uselessness for the believer and the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in comparison. Let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23 together. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word here that you delivered through your apostle Paul and that your word is true and relevant in all seasons in every age, not just for the original hearers, 
Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding of your word here and that it would be an encouragement and an exhortation to us. Pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Our sermon today will consist of three points. Firstly, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Secondly, Christ is the only mediator. And thirdly, true growth is found in Christ's church. Again, that is Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ is the only mediator. And true growth is found in Christ's church. The Old Testament, especially the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is, as especially anybody who will have tried to read from the Bible uh, front to back will know, filled with rules. Rules related to virtually every single aspect of the lives of the people of Israel. There was the moral law, Summarized in the Ten Commandments, a law that had already been at least partially revealed in Genesis, and the applicability of which transcended and continues to transcend the Jewish people of the Old Testament, applicable for all people in all times. There was the civil law, giving rules for how human relationships were to function and how justice would be upheld by the governing authorities of Israel. And there were ceremonial laws, laws which dealt with how the people of God could be ritually clean and able to worship the God of heaven. It was this last category which it seems the false teachers in Colossae were trying to impose upon the people of God which we can see by what Paul says in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And in verses 20 and 21. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. While it is possible and maybe even likely that some of the things that Paul is referring to in these verses do not find their origin in the Old Testament but are completely made up by man, phrases such as questions of food and do not touch would seem to indicate that the false teachers were trying to impose on the Colossian church rules from the Old Testament such as abstention from pork and other ceremonially unclean foods. Laws that were meant to ceremonially purify the people of God to allow them to worship God through sacrifices. Why was Paul opposed to this? He was a Jew, a former Pharisee, who had followed all of these ceremonial laws with passion and with rigidity. Why shouldn't the New Testament people of God, the church, follow the same set of rules as the Old Testament people of God? Well, one answer would be that it was 
in accordance with Peter's experience in Acts 10, where he had a vision in which, reading from verses 11 through 15, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Paul could also have referred in this passage to the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, where the apostles and elders of the church agreed to not require circumcision or adherence to the Jewish law for Gentile converts. Yet Paul doesn't refer to either of those events here. Instead, he goes to the source, the reason for this change in the New Testament. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The ceremonial law of the Old Testament was a shadow, a shadow cast by the Christ who was to come. We might think of a shadow as something that darkens and conceals. Yet, as the commentator William Hendrickson points out, that is not the case with this shadow. It is possible that one is eagerly expecting a person, but happens to be so situated that at his approach, for a moment, his shadow alone is seen. However, that shadow not only guarantees the imminent arrival of the visitor, but it even provides a dim outline describing him. The ceremonial law served to proclaim that there was a Messiah coming. It served to show the people of God why they needed a Messiah, and it served to show them what their Messiah would accomplish. It served as a stepping stone in God's story of redemption. Yet it was not sufficient. It was lacking. The book of Hebrews speaks of this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, when it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect to those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Into this great need, providing a reality to the shadow, putting an end to the long period of anticipation, 
came Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 9 verses 12 through 14 puts it so beautifully, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When the false teachers were instructing the Colossians to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, as well as additional man-made rules, they were not just mistakenly requiring something that was unnecessary. Instead, they were requiring something, communicating a message that Christ was not enough that his redemption, his purification was not enough. Yet Paul says that the substance belongs to or is Christ. Christ has already purified us. As Jesus himself said, it is not what goes into the mouth that makes us unclean, but instead what comes out of it that which is the fruit, showing whether or not we have been purified internally by the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit and making the rites of external purification irrelevant for the believer. As Christians, rather than looking back and attempting to imitate those who lived in a time of shadows, we should rejoice that we have the incredible privilege to personally know the one who cast that shadow. We should rejoice that we no longer must go through the difficult repetition of external ritual purification, but instead can know that Christ has purified us through his once and for all sacrifice. That brings us to our second point. Christ is the only mediator. A second major component of the false teaching in Colossae seems to have had to do with, as Paul puts it, the worship of angels, along with visions that Paul mentions, which seem to have been a part of this worship. Given how common it was in paganism, to worship pantheons of greater and lesser gods, of spirits and demons of this object and this object, it is hardly surprising that the false teachers would combine this universal pagan tendency with the biblical concept of angels. Of course, for many of us, the idea of worshiping or praying to angels is absurd Yet in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 through 9, 
we see that even the Apostle John was prone to this error. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Angels are powerful beings, and they are beings who even the Bible tells us work for our good. When they appear to men, they are usually frightened, scared because of their uh, fearsome outward appearance. Yet, as the angel in Revelation points out, they are merely the servants of the true object of our worship. Paul knew the human tendency in this regard, and so he worked even earlier in the letter to the Colossians to counteract it. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This emphasizes that angels were created by, are dependent on, and find their meaning in God. They are not independent agents, for they cannot do anything for us that is not first decreed by the will of God. And this gets to what many commentators see as the root cause of this worship of angels, one that manifests in different but equally dangerous ways today, seeking another mediator between us and God besides Jesus Christ. In man's wisdom, in earthly wisdom, God is too high, he is too mighty, he is too aloof to be troubled with the day-to-day lives of normal, ordinary people and their boring problems. He would not hear the prayers that we make to him because he is too high and separated from us. And indeed, it would even be insolent and prideful of us to try to pray to him at all. Who are we to bother the supreme God of heaven? This finds a modern expression even in so-called churches, such as, the, such as that of the Pope in Rome. Prayers to and adoration of uh, that verges on worship of Mary, the archangels, Gabriel, and Michael, and the saints. In this view, Jesus and God the Father are far more likely to listen to Mary or the angels or the saints than they are to us. They are more important than we are. They are special. 
and they are even physically present in heaven. In fact, it makes all the sense in the world from a human perspective. But it is absolutely wrong. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our only mediator. And he is not too busy or distant to hear our prayers. As the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ knows each and every one of us personally. He knows us better than we know ourselves inside and out. He died for each and every believer in this room personally. For each and every one of the sins that you and I have ever committed or will ever commit specifically. He knows from personal experience what it is like to be tempted, what it is like to be in pain, what it is like to suffer loss. And at the same time, Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Through him, as the author of Hebrews says, we may approach with confidence, knowing that we will not be rejected or punished for our boldness, but instead be met with mercy and with grace to help us in our time of need. With such a great mediator, how foolish, how pointless, how tragic is it to seek out other mediators? Every Hail Mary, every candle lighted in front of a saint, every kiss of an icon declares distrust in the word of God and in the love of Christ for his people and returns utterly void. Bringing the point closer to home, perhaps for many of us, how often do we refrain from prayer because we consider ourselves unworthy whether because of some sin with which we struggle or with an incomplete understanding of God's sovereignty where God does not care about the prayers of his people because everything is already decided. 
how often even do we ask others to pray for us, which is a good and proper thing to do, but mainly because we fear to bring the prayer before God ourselves because we are afraid that we will be rejected. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our Lord and Savior loves each and every one of you. He loves to hear your prayers. He loves to answer your prayers. You are not insignificant to him, for he bled and died for you and your sins. Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace, day in and day out, making prayer our first resort in our time of need. That brings us to our third and final point. True growth is found in Christ's church. A third major component of the Colossian heresy involved what Paul describes as asceticism, that is, severe self-discipline and denial of bodily wants and needs. Paul seems to imply that the purpose of this asceticism was to grow in spirituality and to suppress sinful desires, an impulse that was common in philosophies that were contemporary with the early church. Many Hellenistic philosophers held to an excessive dualism, seeing the soul as good and the body as evil. In order for the soul to triumph over the body, it was necessary to subdue the body physically through suffering and through self-denial. And the influence of this idea did not only impact the Colossian church. Already early on in the history of Christianity, eccentric individuals, putting it lightly, started to go off and live by themselves in desert caves or on top of pillars. Monastic communities started to arise with their members committed to eternal celibacy, extreme poverty, and many depriving themselves of unbroken sleep and any food beyond the bare minimum. Eventually, the practice of asceticism spread even beyond monastic communities. Practices such as Lent, where churches maintained abstention from certain types of food and drink for the 40 days before Easter. Binding the consciences of Christians in an attempt to achieve greater holiness through the denial of the body. While there is certainly nothing wrong with fasting or even extra-biblical self-denial in and of themselves, and while sometimes they can in fact be a very good thing, they are neither beneficial apart from faith and the means of grace nor are they beneficial when followed out of rote obedience to the decrees of false teachers or a church where we rest 
our hope for salvation upon them. Paul points this out when he says that these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. As well as earlier in our passage today, where he says that those who practice asceticism, among other things, are puffed up rather than growing with a natural growth. The false teaching in Colossae looked good from the outside. It had the appearance of wisdom, but it was divorced from connection to and reliance on Christ. Paul encourages the Colossians to cast this aside because it is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Instead, the Christian should look to, as he says in our passage, the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The spiritual growth of the Christian and of the church does not ultimately come from reliance on external acts of asceticism, but from Christ. As William Hendrickson puts it, the church need not and must not look for any other source of strength to overcome sin or to increase in knowledge, virtue, and joy. Just as the human body when properly supported and held together by joints and ligaments, experiences normal growth, so also the church, when each of its members supports and maintains loving contact with the others, will, under the sustaining care of God, proceed from grace to grace and from glory to glory. If you want victory over your sin, If you want to grow in faith, if you want to grow in love for God and for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want to grow in wisdom, you must be united to Christ and you must be united to his church. It is to believers in Christ's church that this growth is promised. It is a growth that is worked in the believer by the Holy Spirit through the ordinary means of grace, the preaching and the reading of the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And it is out of this spiritual growth, this changed heart, that the lusts of the flesh are defeated. It is out of this growth that obeying the law of God is no longer an agonizing pursuit that must be helped along by mountains of additional rules and regulations like the Jews of Jesus' time, but instead it comes naturally out of a heart of gratefulness. As the commentator William Barclay so helpfully puts it, Christian freedom comes not from restraining desires by rules and regulations, but from the death of evil desires and the springing to life of good desires by virtue of Christ 
being in the Christian and the Christian in Christ. This raises the question, are you experiencing the death of evil desires and the springing to life of good desires? Not perfectly, but noticeably? If the answer to that is no, then let me ask this question. Is Christ in you? Are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? If you have not, then no amount of going through the motions of the Christian life, no amount of rule following, no amount of self-denial or discipline or fasting can help you. Give up your attempt to save yourself through your own works. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation so that you might enjoy the reward of his perfect work. For those of you who are in Christ, meditate on him and his work today. Rejoice that the fulfillment of the shadow has come. Take full advantage of the privilege you have to take your request to the very throne room of heaven and don't give up on Christ's church and the means of grace that he has ordained, but instead eat regularly and eagerly of the spiritual food that you are given for your growth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you have provided a way to us who are utterly incapable of following the law perfectly, who are utterly incapable of even following the law mostly, who are incapable of even following perfectly the rules and regulations made up by men. We thank you and praise you that you have given us your son, that through faith we might be united by him, that we, that we might receive grace for our sin, that we might rely on him and him alone and not on ourselves and our own deeply flawed works for our salvation. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.